While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. Robert Castle was a writer and translator. In 1728, he published his most famous work titled The Villas of the Ancients Illustrated. Most of it is ancient Latin texts on Roman architecture with the English translation alongside, and by English I mean 18th century English, with the S's as F's and all that. Either way, it was a significant book to those people who have an interest in that sort of thing. The book was sold by subscription. You would buy the book before it came out, and the pre-sales would cover the cost of printing the book. Basically, it was crowdsourced. Open the book, and there is a list of the eminent individuals who subscribe to the book, and there under O is James Oglethorpe, Esquire, and it mentions that he bought two books. When Oglethorpe visited Castle to place an order, Castle was in prison for overwhelming debt. He had been convicted, but was serving his sentence outside of the prison walls at a sort of rooming house. Castle raised some money through book sales and donations from friends and almost managed to get out. However, his debts kept coming in and he was arrested again. This time he was sent to Corbett's Sponging House. And, you know, any place called Sponging House can't be good. This wasn't officially the jail. It was a place debtors would stay for a short time while they tried to borrow or raise the money they needed to get out. It was a last chance before the debtor's prison. Not a nice place, and definitely a place where inmates were taken advantage of. Residents had to pay for their room and board at inflated prices. Like a sponge, they were squeezed as hard as they could by the court and the jailers and the guards before finally being locked up in debtor's prison. So basically, they're going to prevail on... So, basically, they're going to prevail on Castle to get as much money out of his friends and relatives as possible. So, Castle's a good example of how ridiculous this system is. They're trying to intimidate him to borrow as much as possible to try to pay off not only his debts, but his room and board as he's locked up for having debts. They knew he had a fear of catching smallpox, so they put him in a room with a roommate that had smallpox, just to intimidate him. Richard Castle caught smallpox, and he died. A newspaper article, which was purportedly written by Oglethorpe, praised Castle's genius and lamented that he had come to such an end. It is to be feared that there are many others in that and other prisons of the kingdom who will perish in the same manner if the laws still permit merciless creditors to indulge their inhumanity toward debtors. This is Moving Through Georgia, and we're going to start this summer series of episodes by looking back at the founding of the Georgia colony. James Oglethorpe sprang from a prestigious and noble family. The family estates were in place in 1066 when the Normans invaded and remained in their hands until the English Civil War. James's grandfather lost the family lands to Parliament due to their loyalty to the king. Oglethorpe's father became a knight through his deeds of the Civil War. He's buried in Westminster Abbey. Two brothers died young after making names for themselves in the military service, leaving James, who was born in 1689, the head of the family. 
He was educated at Oxford, served in the army, and also served in Parliament. While in Parliament, his attention was drawn to the plight of the debtors. The incident with Richard Castle led him to form a committee to investigate the bribery and poor treatment that followed anyone convicted to debtors' prison. One option that may give those prisoners a chance to repay their debts and make a new life for themselves lay in the Americas. Oglethorpe and some others petitioned for a royal charter for a colony in what was then known as the Carolinas, which was granted in 1732. King George signed the petition, and the new land was named after him. Oglethorpe described the land as a land of liberty and plenty, where transplanted Englishmen will find themselves in possession of competent estates in a happier climate than they knew before and they are unfortunate indeed if they cannot forget their sorrows. At this point in England, it's more or less commonly known that someone who falls deeply into debt, even through no fault of their own, has little to no chance of actually getting out of that debt. Jobs were available, but wages were low. An unskilled worker would have a hard enough time keeping a roof over their head and eating every day, forget about extra money to pay off their debt and the creditors had the law on their side. They could just add any extra fees, any extra interest they wanted, so that someone who is in someone's debt stays in someone's debt. One example that Oglethorpe uses is a farmer who rents 10 acres of land. Now normally, 10 acres should be enough to feed a family and pay the rent. Now someone in that situation would just barely be scraping by. If you get sick, or if there's a drought, then you would have to borrow money to continue paying the rent. And someone just scraping by can't afford to borrow money. Oglethorpe and the trustees laid out some very unpopular rules and regulations at the start of the Georgia colony. One reason for these unpopular rules was to avoid the trap of debt that could never be paid off. Philanthropists from all over England donated money to help the colony get established. The Committee of Trustees impressed everyone by announcing they would not seek to profit off the enterprise. They were doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. Committees visited the jails and offered passage to Georgia to those who qualified. An article in a London magazine from 1732 states that the trustees required good moral characters, and examined into the causes and conditions of the misfortunes of each. They confined their charity to such only as fell into misfortunes of trade, and admitted none of those who could get a subsistence in England. They suffered none to go who would leave wives or families without support, none who had the character of lazy or immoral men, and would go without the consent of their creditors. Other colonies would allow entrance to pretty much anyone seeking personal gain. Georgia, however, would only take those who were worthy. Healthy, working-age men would be expected to work. The original plan for the colony had women, the old and the very young, working in the silk industry. Oglethorpe had previously encouraged silk production in England, but since mulberries were expected to grow well in Georgia, it would be the best industry to begin. In fact, the original Georgia seal had silkworms depicted on the back. 120 people, comprising 35 families, were chosen for the first trip. 
because they were expected to provide for themselves and not profit from the labor of others, slavery was prohibited within the colony. And, at the time, that was another unpopular decision. Oglethorpe boarded the ship with the colonists and they set off in November of 1732. The journey took two long months, prayer services were held twice a day, and the group began to grow. Children were lost to disease during the voyage while four were born. Party landed in Charleston on January 13th. The people of South Carolina were happy to see these pioneers arrive, and they were given all possible assistance. A colony to their south would act as a buffer between them and the Spanish who were in Florida. The fact that the Spanish are in Florida is going to lead to more unpopular decisions. People are going to be allocated smaller plots of land closer together, but this is so that they could muster quickly if the Spanish were to show up on their doorstep. Finally landing and unloading, the new citizens of Georgia gathered for a pep talk from their leader, in which he mostly warned them to avoid the perils of alcohol. And of course, the prohibition on alcohol is going to be another decision that the colonists are not going to be happy about. Here another person enters the story. Her name was originally Kusaponakisa, but when she married an English trader, she changed it to Mary Musgrove. Musgrove was the daughter of a prominent English planter and a Native American woman. Her familiarity with both languages and customs drew Oglethorpe's attention, and she was brought on as his translator. We will definitely discuss Mary Musgrove in another episode. While the colonists waited, Oglethorpe and some others traveled up the Savannah River by boat. He and those that accompanied him came upon a high bluff that would make a good spot for a town. There was a Native American village nearby and some negotiation would be necessary. That was because the governor of South Carolina had made a treaty with the Native American tribe that British colonists wouldn't press any further south than the Savannah River. And then, oh, here comes Oglethorpe traveling up the Savannah River. Luckily, Mary Musgrove knew both languages and she had credibility with both the people of South Carolina and the Native Americans around. She was able to negotiate with Tomochichi to allow the settlers to, well, settle there. In July of 1733, Oglethorpe held a founding ceremony in which the wards and tithings were established. A tithing was an organized group of ten houses, and a ward consisted of four tithings. Colonists were awarded house lots, five acres for a garden, and an allotment of farmland to make each bequest equal 50 acres. By the end of 1733, there would be 50 wooden homes standing in Savannah, and trade would have begun with the Creek and the colonists in South Carolina. Under the original charter, one person could own up to 500 acres in Georgia. Now, I read a very interesting article in the Georgia Historical Quarterly by a fellow named Mark Reinberger. His article talks about the differences between William Penn's Pennsylvania and Oglethorpe's Georgia. In Pennsylvania, a colonist could have up to 5,000 acres. However, colonists in Pennsylvania were not a human shield for the other colonies. So again, colonists in Georgia had to be closer together, thereby smaller allotments of land. 
Also, the city of Philadelphia was initially laid out in streets and grids, but once those grids were filled up, the city expanded any which way. Not so in Savannah. Savannah was founded with streets and squares in grids, and when it expanded, it expanded according to that plan. Now, Penn was a Quaker, and he believed that society had a natural social order. He believed that there were supposed to be people on top and people at the bottom. Not so much with Georgia. Georgia was intended to be a place where everyone got a fair start and everyone had a level playing field. So here at the end of what probably sounded to most of you like a middle school Georgia history lecture, the city of Savannah has been founded. Decisions have been made. This is a planned society living in a planned city. Those who represented the tithings and wards may have been, you know, nominal leaders of the community, but they were selected by the trustees rather than elected. So now that the plans of the trustees have been put into effect, we're going to see in the next episode how they turn out in reality. But before I go, I want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a Georgia history podcast that mostly focuses on Northeast Georgia, but we are taking for the first few episodes this summer a wider view. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, the best way you can help is by giving us five stars on iTunes. Those stars are going to help get this podcast out to a wider audience. In the next episode, we talk more about James Oglethorpe and how this great experiment pans out. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe From an aid that pretty gal to Georgia That's all